The Reminiscing in Time podcast is brought to you by the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music Centennial Committee and Office of Communications. Join the celebration online at music.indiana.edu. I'm John Christopher Porter, and this is Reminiscing in Time from the IU Jacobs School of Music. I'd like to welcome my guests to this very special episode of Reminiscing in Time to talk about Mr. Tuba, the late great distinguished professor of tuba, Harvey Phillips. Joining our conversation are Provost Professor of Music and Tuba, Dan Parentoni, affectionately known as Mr. P, Professor of Music and Jazz Studies and Jacobs alum, trumpeter Pat Harbison, and Professor Emeritus of Music, former chair of brass, and former trombonist with the Philadelphia Orchestra, M.D. Stewart. Gentlemen, welcome to the pod. Hey, thanks so much, John. Thanks for having us. My pleasure. Dan, let's start with you. Many of our listeners know Harvey Phillips as the tuba professor at the IU School of Music for over 20 years throughout the 70s, 80s, into the 90s. He had a rather auspicious start to his career with Ringling Brothers as a teenager, could you tell us a little bit about Harvey's beginnings and what established him as such a great musician early on? Well, one of the things I'd like to start with is I had the pleasure of being one of Harvey's former students, colleagues, and more importantly, one of his closest friends, you know. And I am honored and privileged to be Harvey's successor as professor of tuba at the Jacobs School of Music at Indiana University. You're talking about Harvey's beginning and the like. Um, Harvey grew up in Missouri and um, that was, he's always thought himself, he loved animals, he loved the farm. And that was always something he, even we have the tuba ranch out there now, and uh, which is still going, but Harvey had a collection of horses, had a chicken that was unbelievable, you know. I could tell you a story. Harvey gave the tuba class in integrity, you know. And much of his influence on the rest of the brass instruments was second to none. Much of what we have today is musicians and especially as tuba players, such as solo repertoire, chamber music, symposium, notoriety, and job, job opportunities is due to the efforts of Harvey Phillips. And he is, in my opinion, the most important brass instrument entrepreneur of his time. You know, he did so much for the instrument. He was always so dedicated, you know. He went to New York City, studied with Bill Bell. And one of the things that uh, Harvey loved was Christmas. You know, everybody knows Tuba Christmas now. And the reason he did that was to pay tribute to William Bell, who was the first professor of Tuba here. And Bell was born on Christmas Day. So that's a special day for Harvey, not only, and that's one of the driving forces behind Tuba Christmas, to pay recognition to his mentor and friend, William Bell. So, um, you know, there's so much we could talk about. Harvey's early days with the circus, Ringling Brothers, 
he went to New York City as a freelancer. And also as a freelancer, he became a really important booker of, that's how he knew so many people. He booked all kinds of shows, uh, uh, some of the orchestra concerts, everything. You were one of Harvey's closest friends, Dan, and a student of his. What was your first interaction with Harvey, and uh, when did you begin your association with him? Well, I was at Eastman, and it was my sophomore year, and the New York Brass Quintet came and performed a concert. And I was so impressed. I said to myself, that's what I want to do. And that was one of the start. I met Harvey Phillips. And then later on, when I was in the Army Band, Robert Palanche was a really good friend of Harvey's. They were in the um, touring band, the Army Field Band. And uh, Bob says, hey, would you like to meet Harvey? And I says, great, I'd love to come over. And I wanted a lesson. So I went to Bob's house and uh, met Harvey Phillips. We went down the basement, had a lesson. And from then on, we became extremely good friends. And I used to go to New York City Anytime I could to take a lesson with Harvey, but a lesson with Harvey was you showed up, you went out, you had lunch, and then you went to all of his gigs and we talked and then you played duets and things of that nature. And one of the biggest influences I remember Harvey looked at me and says, Dan, I think you should be a teacher. I really think you should teach. He says, I know you're, you're a good performer and the like, but let's, let's teach. And then he gave something, another insight, for example, with the New York Brass Quintet, it launched the, for example, there was not really a tuba, a tuba teacher uh, teaching tuba. Most of it was trombone. I studied with Donald Knob, frankly, one of the best tuba teachers in the world. You know, so he said, well, you know, with the Brass Quintet, we can get more jobs for tuba players, you know. And he sort of launched that idea, you know. He says, you know, uh, that's something that you really have to get into, you know. He said, we, we, we can, we, he said, had all these ideas in spinning. And today, all the, we have probably about 250 tuba teachers in the world, and it's responsible because of the movement of the brass quintet. And the reason being is, you could go out with the brass quintet and recruit. You didn't have to take an orchestra or a band. And so that led to a lot of jobs. And that's one of the things that we were into from the beginning, you know, uh, and I, I'm extremely proud of, you know, 50 years later, I look back and see all these jobs and I give Harvey the credit for the influence of just thinking about that and doing it. He was, he was more interested in just, uh, he was a driving force of creating TUBA, the Tubas Univer Universal Brotherhood Association. He hosted the first International Brass Congress, created Octuba Fest, Tuba Christmas events, everything to recognize our instrument. But he is also an amazing soloist, an exceptional musician who could perform any style of repertoire at the highest level. And he gave the tuba an identity as a solo instrument. His influence is responsible for making today's repertoire for the tuba a reality. He was a composer's best friend. He commissioned over 200 works for the tuba. When I was very young, trying to look for a tuba solo, you had to make fun of our instrument, Sleep in the Deep. I think I auditioned at Eastman on a sousaphone with a Sleep in the Deep, and I couldn't believe I got in. <laughs> and today, we have, we have a lot of really fine literature, again, under the influence of Harvey Phillips. Dee, your years at IU overlap with Harvey's quite a bit, um, but did you interact with Harvey professionally before IU? No, I, uh, I don't think I'd ever met him until I came there in 1980. And he was uh, one of the reasons I came to IU because the uh, low brass <laughs> um, end of the uh, faculty consisted of uh, Louis Van Haney, 
and uh, Keith Brown and Harvey Phillips. I mean, you know, those are those are very, very important people in our world. And uh, I was coming from the Philadelphia Orchestra surrounded by people like that. And um, I just felt right at home when I when I came. Um, uh, Harvey was uh, certainly a unique uh, individual. Uh, I, music is music is such a big field. You know, it's like it's like sports. You can you can be a great player, but but you can also be a great announcer or a great manager or a great somebody's got to build the floor. Somebody's got to build the nets, you know, and and Harvey uh, Harvey looked broadly at music. There's no question about that. I, I had heard of Harvey before I came here, of course. And uh, one thing was I remember sitting in the um, lounge of the Philadelphia Orchestra one time and one of my friends came in. Uh, a violinist actually waving a magazine. Look what Harvey did. Look what Harvey did. And he had the uh, what was it? The New Yorker, I think. And Harvey was was on the cover of of the New Yorker magazine. I mean, who ever heard of such a thing for any musician, let alone a tuba player? Uh, that's kind of indicative of um, the the way he was known around New York and around town and around the world, really. I think the New York Brass Quintet, Dan, you know that story about when they were traveling out uh, out through the West. You know the story I'm talking about where they stopped, uh, the quintet was driving through the desert somehow, and there was only one gas station, and they stopped there and, and um, went in for a sandwich, and the telephone rang, and the guy behind the bar said, is there a Harvey Phillips here? You know that story? I think, is that is that told about right? That's, you got it, yeah. Huh? Yeah, but he was uh, he was a singular person, and no question. And uh, I think we can all learn from from looking broadly at at the field. What were some of your first interactions with with Harvey at IU, and what was he like as a colleague? A lot of fun, <laughs> great fun. Uh, first thing really was uh, when I came here, uh, I was kind of lonely actually because uh, of all the uh, high action <clears throat> and friends that I had in the Philadelphia Orchestra. And um, then all of a sudden, I found myself in this little room teaching one at a time and and uh, uh, youngsters, you know, and that was that was fine. I really enjoyed that. That became maybe my most important thing in life. But um, so I hadn't done very much. I remember uh, Harvey came to the brass meeting one time and he had this idea of a brass congress and everybody kind of uh, looked and rolled their eyes and said, oh, yeah, how are we going to do that? And uh, Harvey, of course, knew how to do that. And um, we put together the 1984 uh, Second Brass Congress, which packed the Mac uh, with people from all over the world, you know, on all the instruments and all the organizations, like Dan mentioned, uh, the ITA, the trombone one, the trumpet guild, the French horn, uh, horn call people, and, um, and the tuba people as well, of course. Uh, tuba euphonium and um, so Harvey was going to chair the tuba end of it and Phil Farkas was going to chair the French horn and um, Charlie Gorham was going to chair the trumpets and everybody looked around at the trombone faculty and uh, nobody put up their hand uh, like they would do it and uh, uh, I went home and said to my wife you know I haven't really done very much here I think maybe this is something I could I could do it's only it's going to take three years and it won't be that big a deal 
<laughs> so I did the uh, trombone one and to sit in meetings with Harvey and Phil and Charlie and, and uh, all that was amazing to see those guys work. Harvey, uh, one of the things he wanted to do was to get Doc Severinsen to come. And I thought, oh, that's a real stretch. And uh, he said, no, I don't mean just Doc Severinsen. I mean the band, the whole wow. Tonight Show band. And that part didn't come to fruition, but Doc did come and and uh, was a big, big star. For that, we uh, had the uh, auditorium and had a good crowd there. So that was just an example of, of one little thing. And that was pretty early on. I think that was probably 1981 or so when, yeah. when we had that initial meeting and the Congress didn't take place till 1984. But I mean, that was that was tough, hard, grueling work. But Harvey just just led the way and uh, knew exactly. He knew the people to contact. It was a piece of cake. You just had to follow along. Indeed, I should add, you know, in 1973, we had the first international tuba uh, uh, meeting here. And uh, same thing. It was a tribute to composers. He had everybody here. I mean, uh, you name the composer Nellie Bell, everybody was here and all of us were invited to perform. Anyway, Harvey got sick and I was closely associated with Harvey and I just found myself having to jump in and take here. I'm, at, I'm teaching in Illinois and I'm over here in Indiana trying to make this doggone thing work. <laughs> wow, wow. Was I in for an education, you know, how to get people off the stage, how to promote this, how to do a press conference, how to do a lot of things just jumped in. I mean, it was mind boggling what Harvey had taken care of. Yeah. And yeah. also, too, I should tell you that uh, the TUBA, the foreman of TUBA was responsible for the other groups. You know, uh, Trumpet was not uh, in association then. I remember we put that together with Dave Hickman and um, trombone was just starting. But the influence of these symposiums and uh, uh, associations was just to get the word out about our instrument and uh, be able to share ideas with everybody around the world. So he was a major influence of all the associations. Yeah, Tom Everett was also very, very big in that. Yes, he was that. in that. Yes, and uh, and actually, we we uh, Tom was another really great organizer, and um, uh, he started the ITA, the Trombone Association. And uh, for one of the meetings that we had in preparation for that 1984 uh, Congress was to invite uh, Tom Everett to come and spend a couple of days with us and help us help us get it all organized. But yeah, those those guys like that really make a big, big difference in the world, in our little little corner of the world. It's just amazing. And uh, uh, talking about getting on and off stage, um, one of the people the trombones invited was Bill Watrous. He was really hot at that time. You know his name. And um, so I was backstage. I introduced him and and uh, uh, that sort of thing. And I would be backstage and usher him on. And it came time for uh, I think Charlie Vernon was was playing on stage and and Bill and I were in the wings waiting because he was going to be the final act. And Bill was furious. He had gotten word that Doc Severinsen was given a stake. Uh, I don't know anything about a stake and who cares anyway. But but Bill cared. And he said, I'm not I'm going home. I'm not going to do this thing. I'm going home. And so while Charlie's playing uh, Brahms songs, Bill and I are walking back and forth behind the stage, trying to calm him down and get him 
get him smoothed over so we could get him on stage. I was never so happy to see him walk out the, um, uh, through the wings onto that stage, I'll tell you. Did he get his steak? <laughs> I don't know. I avoided him after that. Yeah, right. Uh, Dan mentioned Harvey's um, enormous entrepreneurial spirit and drive. And that's so evident, D, in that story. Um, has anything like the, the Brass Congress happened since then? I should tell you, uh, uh, the other idea Harvey had, he won an international brass association made up of the trumpet tuba and all that. And we had our first sort of symposium in Montreux, uh, Switzerland, you know? And uh, uh, I don't know how he pulled it off. He got uh, one of the Italian garbage truck people who was a multimillionaire to pay for it. And I remember because I was on the budget committee, about $80,000 went and lost. And of course, funds were picked up by then. I mean, Harvey always went big. He never did anything small, anything that had to do with it. And in fact, when I came here, I did a, a similar thing in 1995 uh, with, with several uh, associations and the Summit Brass. And uh, I remember the dean telling me, he says, boy, I'm going to have someone follow you around. We can't lose any money because in the first symposium, they lost $50,000. Of course, of course, we got funding to pay for it. I mean, it, it, it's, it's not a thing, but that's how he thought big. Anything Harvey did, man, was first class. You know? And, you know, we got Pat Harvey's in here talking about the jazz, but, you know, I was also involved with a jazz group with Rich Madison and Harvey Phillips. And I'll tell you how that came about. Rich Madison and Harvey were at uh, one of the universities where Don Little was teaching, and he did a tuba quartet or a, a tuba ensemble concert. And Rich Madison, the jazzer, said that Harvey says, wow, we ought to do a band like it. Harvey says, yeah, let's do it. Rich, what do you think? He says, oh, let's put a big band together, three euphoniums, three tubas, wow. piano, bass, drums, and Jack Peterson. He says, okay. He says, who do you want to get? Harvey said, well, I'll take care of the tubas and you get it. All right, so Harvey knew me. I'm a frustrated old jazz pianist, uh, you know, and says, well, let's have Ben and Winston Morris. And hey, that's the tuba jazz concerts. Okay. Next Ashley thing, Alexander. Yeah, Ashley Alexander. There, there's so many people that played with us, including Steve Houghton, uh, mm -hmm. Kellaway. I mean, you know. We went to the Montreal Jazz Festival, but our rhythm says was Hank Jones and people like that. I mean, I couldn't believe it. And then we were invited to Dick, Dick Gibson's jazz party as a featured guest. All the jazz players were there. I mean, my heroes, Oscar Peterson, uh, uh, Ray Brown. Uh, I, I could go on for, you know, and it was a three-day party with all these great jazz players, and we were the featured group. So, I mean, anything those guys did, it was big. We toured Australia. Harvey set up concerts all throughout Australia with the tuba jazz concert. We went to Japan uh, as, as a guest thing. So I'm just trying to show you how big those guys thought, and I was so honored to be a part of it. Well, this is a great segue uh, further into uh, the, the jazz side of things with Harvey Phillips. Pat, you were a grad student in jazz studies I was in grad school from 82 yeah. to 84 and Harvey asked me for that brass Congress to contract all the rhythm sections and all the extra jazz musicians they needed for 
everything. So I booked all the rhythm sections, uh, you know, for the for the different concerts, which was, you know, and I was like 28 or 20, you know, something like that, you know, and it was it was it was a gas and it was a gas working with all the different uh, uh, players, some of whom like I knew, like Jack Peterson and people like that, and some of whom I was just meeting or I'd only been on the student side of things at Rich Madison master classes or whatever, you know, and uh, so that was that was like a, a really great thing. But all from 82 to 84, the whole time I was in grad school, you know, here's another Harvey thing, you know, he he always wanted to learn something new. He wanted to have a new challenge that would kick himself in the butt. And so he was deeply into learning how to improvise jazz. And he started taking lessons with David Baker and he convinced David to start the 21st century bebop band, which ended up being sort of like uh, inspired by birth of the cool and uh, all the incredible tuba playing that Don Butterfield did on those records, but he really wanted to learn to improvise. So he would take lessons from David and he would, David would write these tunes and Harvey would at first write out and work out his solos based on the jazz theory and stuff. Uh, and then he'd memorize his solos. And then after a while, he just said, oh, to heck with it and just started going for it. And, uh, but anyway, it was, it was great because that band, we rehearsed a couple times a week in Harvey's studio and we played gigs and recorded through those, that entire two-year period that I was here. And some of those gigs were in like Cleveland and Chicago and places like that. So I got to drive Harvey, drive Harvey's car, you know, and pick his brain, you know, for seven, eight hours in the car, which as a 28-year-old, you know, it's like I got everything from uh, come on, tell me stories about like the, those Gil Evans records you're on, which are some of my favorite records, to asking him life advice and advice about pedagogy, because I knew I was headed, you know, I had been in New York and I couldn't bring myself to go to grad school until after I'd been in New York, you know, and uh, I, you know, I was asking him about, you know, his transition from being a full-time player to being a, a master teacher and a great player, and you know, one of the things, listening to Dan and Dee talk, one of the things Harvey, one of the bits of advice Harvey gave me was, you never know if you're working to your full capacity and achieving your maximum potential until you're overcommitted. And then you just get used to that, mm. you know? <laughs> and like, I remember asking her, but again, that question, when he took on the, uh, editorial position at the instrumentalist magazine and it was like how can you do that on top of everything else you're doing and he said well you know i won't know if it's too much until i'm in the middle of it so i'm gonna go for it and it was also interesting to me that here i am like a you know 28 year old or whatever and you know on these car drives like he would turn the tables on me and he would ask me jazz questions and he would ask me my own you know, opinions, you know, positive and negative about, you know, jazz education and David's pedagogy and what was it like to work with Jamie and Jamie Abersold and all these different things. I mean, he, he had this insatiable curiosity in addition to this uh, self-driven 
uh, aspiration for artistry, but also the entrepreneurship, which some of you have mentioned before. It was just very inspiring to actually have him as a mentor and 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 really a friend, you know, when he was, you know, 20, he was like, you know, 25 years, 30 years, he was the age of my mom and dad, yet he was treating me like a peer, which was like kind of wacky to me at the time and, but gave me this idea. He said, well, you know, we're fellow travelers and I'm just on a different place in the road, but we're fellow travelers. So, you know, here we go. And I called him, God, eight or 10 times at least for big career and life advice later. He was definitely, we didn't talk regularly, but he was always somebody I knew I could go to for life advice, career advice, pedagogy advice. And there's a lot of his stuff that like about teaching. I'll just tell you one thing that I, I still use. And he said, well, you know, in music school, everybody always frames their lessons and all their uh, ideas about how they work on their music based on their mistakes and their weaknesses and getting rid of their weaknesses. And he said, nobody ever pays you for your weaknesses. They might not call you back because of your weaknesses, but you get hired because of your strengths. And he said, if you have a list of your strengths and when you're working with a student or when you're developing your own artistic career and voice you focus more in the final analysis on being able to enhance your strengths and make an identity out of what you can do and you love to do and you do naturally then getting rid of the deficits is just the way you keep those opportunities flowing. So I've used that forever. And that's just one little bit of advice that shaped my entire view of how this career is supposed to work. Pat, you know, uh, one of the things like as a mentor, he, he liked to promote artists too. He gave so many of us a chance. For example, yes. his idea like, let's let's do, I'm going to get, I'm going to go 10 concerts, 10 recitals in Carnegie Hall. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I, I was included in that, you know, okay, Dan, here, you go in there in Carnegie Hall. He booked everything. There was 10 of us, Roger Bobo, I could name a whole bunch of people. And we presented in one month, 10 concerts for tuba, which was unheard of, let's see, 1970, uh, early 70s, you know? Right. So, I mean, that's that's where Harvey was. I mean, he, he, he just was so genuine and like you say, okay, I'm gonna do this, but I'm getting everybody involved. Let's go. The initiative he always took, you know, this is of course the generation of Americans who wanted a music career and decided to run off and join the circus. I mean, oh my gosh, that's so, there was nothing passive about that man at all. And boy, the sense of humor, I gotta share you with, it, with this story. We were performing at the Jazz Showcase in Chicago with a tuba jazz concert. And during a short break, a gentleman came up to the bandstand and said to Harvey, is this outfit any good? Harvey replied, frankly, I think you would look better in a blue suit. And of course, we folded everybody. Rich couldn't play a note. Rich Madison, for about five minutes, he was laughing so hard, you know? But uh, Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. My, my favorite Harvey uh, reply like that, somebody that it was a, a music critic that he didn't particularly like, who'd probably written some bad things about him at one point, came up to him uh, after a concert when I, one of the David Baker concerts we had played. And he said, uh, 
man, this is amazing. The band sounds great. Everything's swinging. It's really in tune. And Harvey looked at him and said, that's great. How can you tell? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, he was something. The one thing about uh, uh, him uh, supporting people, I think Dan is is bringing you to IU, and that that was uh, uh, just amazing. And my connection with with you has um, has been really really high. And he and he supported you throughout after he retired and everything. He was very supportive of you and your studio and everything, as I recall, as I as I know. And uh, just wanted to make sure we interjected that. Well, you know, I had to tell you that following Harvey, I said, how the heck am I going to do this? Uh, it was, uh, you know, and he helped me right away. And, and uh, you know, he said, this is yours and you do what you want and such and such. And I'll help you any way I possibly can. And, you know, uh, I'll tell you how influential he was. Uh, I, I um, after I left the Army Band, I went to Amsterdam. I played in the, uh, uh, the Kunstmann Orchestra and, and the Ballet and Opera Orchestra for a year and a half or so. I came back to this country and there wasn't any job opening. Of course, you know, Harvey called me and he says, hey, Dan, uh, there's going to be a teaching position open at Michigan called Bill Rebelli. Okay, you know, I knew who Rebelli was, but I didn't know the extent of how big this man was in the band world. So I called Rebelli and uh, <laughs> I think this is one of the times being an Italian uh, paid off and uh, he says well, what degree do you have and I said I have a bachelor's he says call me when you get a master's and I said to him I says what do you want a tuba teacher or a degree and he laughed and he says Dan really he says what are you going to do next year and 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 uh, this is this is a turning point in my life I said well I just want a minor symphony uh, a symphony job in North Carolina and he says, how much does it pay? And I told him, I think we've toured for, uh, you got a dollar for lunch and a dollar quarter for supper. And it was a touring orchestra. And he says, how much money did you spend in your education? And he says, why would you take a job like that? He says, go get a master's and then call me. And this is Harvey setting up too, right? And I took his advice. I went to Catholic University. You know, I still had the GI Bill and all these tuba jobs started happening. And I went to the University of Illinois, uh, and, and Harvey had so many connections, you know, uh, Alec Wilder, for example. Um, right now, I'm trying to get his library, which I have, Harvey's library, and it's donated to our school. And I have about 15 boxes stored down, and unfortunately, because of this pandemic, I can't really get to it to, to get through it. But I, as I thumb through that library, you won't believe this stuff from uh, these major people that Harvey has in his music. And he kept files on everything, you know, on file cards, I found that. And it's it's quite amazing. And so um, I just want to share you that uh, all these stories and stuff about him. And Harvey wrote a book, it's called Mr. Tuba, Harvey Phillips and the Forward by David Baker. And you can get this at uh, Indiana Press. And it is a wonderful read. And uh, he tells some stories in there like, you know, that I'm going through that'll just bring, some, you know, some of the tears to your eyes and a lot of humor. Uh, what is Harvey's lasting influence on all brass musicians, not just tuba players? And what can we all learn even today? Oh, I don't know. His his influence was has just been uh, unbelievable. Um, and like I said, the, the field of music is so broad uh, that 
you know, from composers to arrangers to teachers to players to uh, instrument makers and all kinds of things. And, and he touched everything, you know, don't think we could come up with a subject that he didn't have some influence on. And um, Dan has been has brought us up to date really well. And uh, and of course, all the stuff that happened before I ever met him was just amazing. And I know what happened afterwards. And that's super critical. Um, the things he did not do, he didn't write any music, right? Did he arrange any music? Yeah, he did a couple things, not that many. You know, yeah. uh, he arranged uh, some things from Bach and the like, I, tuba quartets and the like. Right. But he, but he encouraged composers and arrangers. He, he did it from that angle, which most of us wouldn't have even thought about, you know. And of course, the, the skills and management and everything all the people he knew and, and his vision and all that. Generally, great players don't think in those regards. You know, they're so involved in their own work. And Carol was in there all the time. Carol was writing all the letters and, and I know putting together tuba Christmases and all that, right, Dan? You bet. Um, I, I, one of the best, nicest pictures I've ever seen. And Dan, you probably know this picture. And I don't know where I've seen it actually, but there's a picture of, of Harvey and Carol dancing like jitterbugging way <laughs> back when. He was a slim debonair and she was just beautiful. And he was, he was swinging her out and her dress was swinging out. Yeah, that's, that's, that's on his solo album he did back there. Our organization did a memoir of his, you know, like a, a compilation of all the solos and put it out. And that's the front of the picture that we used. It's a fantastic picture and, and speaks, speaks thousands of words just to watch that and their interaction. Carol was a supporting factor behind him, and she was a heck of a good critic, too, you know. She uh -huh. was a tough lady, man, in the best possible sense of the word, you know. And yeah. uh, they were devoted to family. And I think the most important thing that I learned from that is a statement he made. Just don't sit around and make things happen. Think outside the box. You know, and, and I find that a lot of students, when they come here, they go through the classes and they expect things. Well, here I graduate and there's, you know, hey, there's no jobs out there. You got to hustle. And that's one yeah. of the influences that he taught all of us. All right. Pay your dues. <laughs> Pat, you talked about your, your car trips with Harvey and, you know, I somehow got this vision of Luke and uh, Yoda driving across the Midwest on the way to jazz gigs and at a station. No, it's, it was totally that thing. I mean, it, I mean, it was totally, man. I was like, I would just, you know, you, you didn't have to prompt him much to get him to dispense stories and words of wisdom at, but he just sort of naturally would like, you know, start him up and stand back and listen. Yeah. But, uh, but I, I, I do think that, that we've all said he, there are some things that, that, you know, he was really involved in. He was, he had, his work ethic was incredible. His imagination was incredible. You know, in his mind, you know, America was the greatest place on earth because you could get an idea and make it happen, you know, through like hard work, industry and act of will. And, uh, you know, he, he said that sort of thing to me all the time. He was really into building community and mm -hmm. uh, collaboration, not competition. You know, his idea was that it's always 
a collaborative art and it, the business should be collaborative too. And if, if one of us does good, then it's almost incumbent on that person to help everybody else do better too. And uh, there were just, you know, like really that's the legacy, all those commissions and the sense of community he built in the brass world and in the tuba world. And, you know, everybody was a fellow traveler and, we just needed to like hold hands and go off into the the wilderness together and see what we could find and uh, what we could make happen. And to me, that's the legacy, and you know that's got to survive. You know, I think like Dan said, sometimes the uh, I hate to sound like an old man now and hey kids get off my lawn and all that, but <laughs> this idea of passivity is just no was nowhere to be found around him and i already you know had mentors like uh, david and jamie who had were people who went off and and just created something they got an idea and wouldn't it be great if and then they just went off and did it and harvey was a simplification of that and so many of his students, you can tell a Harvey Phillips student partly because they're incredibly musical, but you can tell them more than anything because they go after stuff. Yeah. What an indelible imprint um, all of this has had on our community, thanks to Harvey Phillips. That's, that's amazing. Pat, you've mentioned the, the term legacy a couple of times in, in your comments. Um, Dan, just to wrap things up, I know that we have things like the Harvey Phillips Foundation. What what other ways is Harvey's legacy being honored today? We've we lost him a few years back, unfortunately, but uh, there's there's always some way of remembering Harvey Phillips. Well, I think the remembrance right now is that's going all over the world, frankly, in all the countries is Tuba Christmas, and his idea of Tuba Christmas was having a young player sit next to a very established player and that influence. You know, frankly speaking, I, I, I've done many of the tube at Christmas and sat next to it and, and I thought, oh boy, do I have to do this? But when you sit down and there's a little kid next to you and it looks in those eyes and starts playing a thing, it's, that's, that's Harvey right there. You sit, you just melt and you say, boy, look at what we're doing. His legacy is still out there. His son, Tommy, now is doing tube Christmases and uh, it's, it's set up as a really good organization, and it's exciting to see it all over the world. I, I get lots of letter, little letters in here, you know, asking me, and I said, no, no, I'm the wrong guy. You, you, you have to go to Phillips. And uh, so it's still out there, you know, he will not be forgotten. And boy, if we have anything to do with it, he will not be forgotten, believe me. Yeah, baby. That's great. Well, in the spirit of Christmas and Tuba Christmas and Tuba Santas, um, it's that time of year. And on that note, I'd like to take us home. Thank you all so very much for being with me on the pod today. Dan Parentoni, MD Stewart, and Pat Harbison. Gentlemen, happy holidays and take care. Thanks, Thanks a lot. So much, John. A great opportunity. Thanks, John. Thanks, D. that's our show. For Reminiscing in Time, I'm John Christopher Porter. Thanks for listening. Take care of yourselves and each other. Wear your masks and be safe.
Our theme music, Danabar, is by Luke Gillespie and performed by the composer and members of the IU Jazz Studies faculty on the album Moving Mists from Patois Records. The Reminiscing in Time podcast is produced by the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music. Find us on Spotify, social media, or music.indiana.edu.